Hey everybody, this is To The Well, a podcast from UNC Chapel Hill students about the intersection between faith, reason, and culture. I'm Brody Hegenbotham, I'm on the editing team here at To The Well, and I'm here with Matt Gillespie, and he is one of our writers for the semester, and he's going to talk about medicine and theology and a whole bunch of stuff. How are you doing, Matt? Doing well, Brody. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself to start? Sure. So I am a senior this year. Uh, I go to the Chapel Hill Bible Church. Um, I'm a biostatistics major, and I am pre-med, hoping to go to medical school after graduation. Um, And yeah, I've been really interested in the topic of um, theology and philosophy and how that intersects with medicine, um, especially just in the last year or so. So I'm excited to be able to offer my thoughts for the journal. Yeah. Why don't you tell us what got you thinking about this topic to begin with? It started with a discussion group that I did through the North Carolina Study Center uh, with a person who was a med student at the time. His name was Ben Frush. He's now a resident at Vanderbilt. Um, But he did a program through Duke Divinity School called Theology, Medicine, and Culture. And he had us read um, some really provocative selections that he had read while at Duke Divinity. Um... And I realized that there were so many things about medicine that I just took to be um, assumptions or systems that there was no way of changing and um, things that I would have to, assuming I get into medical school and assuming I become a doctor, actually have to work within um, and assumptions that I didn't realize were even there um, that we would have to make as doctors. And so it was thinking through all of that in that discussion group that really got me interested Um, And I began to just read a little bit more on my own. Yeah. So in reading a little bit of the outline for your article that you sent me, I can tell that those assumptions and these realizations have led you to realize more things about the pre-med life for UNC undergraduate students. So why don't you share a little bit more about what your experience or others' experiences have been like as pre-med students at UNC? Yeah, so... I felt like this was the only topic I really had authority to write on at this point. Um, I have done the pre-med track, but I have not become a doctor yet. So it's hard to really reflect on an experience that I haven't had. So um, as I was kind of considering, especially this summer, more about my pre-medical experience, um, I realized that there was kind of a tension or maybe even um, like a total discrepancy, a total difference between what I've learned in pre-med and what I've observed as I've watched Dr. Shadow and heard doctors talk about their jobs. Um, I sort of realized, um, you know, my experience has been um, lots of up and downs, lots of ebbing and flowing um, in terms of the difficulty of coursework and how stressful it was and how hard it was for me. there have been times where I've felt pretty comfortable in pre-med classes and other times where I've been totally over my head and totally overwhelmed. Um, and so I think that this is a common narrative in people's pre-medical experience, right? Is that, um, there are weed out classes and there's tons of stress and we focus on, you know, memorizing all of the amino acids or, um, learning every anatomical structure in the body. Um, all of these things are good for doctors to know. And like, Obviously, you have to know the science before you can really treat people. Um, But I was thinking a lot about the ways that um, that would match up with a profession in medicine. 
And it was hard to see where those two things really matched up. So that was what made me start thinking more about it. Yeah, you end up so highly specialized or so technical in your training that you forget you're healing people, you know, with all the complexities that come with being a human. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Yeah. Yeah, I saw like shadowing, um, you know, I shadowed a doctor in Kinston, North Carolina, um, who would tell me before we would go into a patient's room that um, her son had gone to school with that patient or that um, that patient's children, um, like she knew through her husband's nonprofit or something like that. Um, I've shadowed other doctors who know um, the patients who will be compliant with certain treatment and they kind of know the bounds of what they can prescribe or what they can um, expect the patient to do um, when they return home from the hospital. Um, but then they also interact with other patients who really couldn't follow those sorts of instructions or they know would, uh, the doctors know would just end up, the patients would end up back in the hospital um, and that those methods of treatment wouldn't be effective for that patient. And so you see this intense focus on the person even before um, all of the science and all of the treatment that can possibly cure their disease. Um, So what do you think are the major pitfalls with the way that we are currently training doctors in the pre-med track? I think, um, so like I said, my experience has been just a lot of stress and a lot of difficulty. Um, and I think that's common. If you look at, um, how many people come into Carolina saying that they're pre-med and how many people leave Carolina remaining pre-med or maybe more on the track to medical school, um, those numbers shouldn't lie. You know, you see, over 50% of students coming in who are saying they're biology and pre-med. And obviously some of those students leave that focus um, for good reasons, because they find something else that they love. Um, One of my friends um, found photojournalism as his, um, it's not even an alternative to pre-medicine, it's just what he loves to do. And so he left the track because of that. But then there are a lot of other students who are discouraged by the rigor, um, who can't find joy in studying what will lead up to a medical education because of, um, you know, the fact that these classes are trying to weed them out. Um, and I think I've just seen that so much and seen in my own experience, while I haven't yet been dissuaded, um, it's just been hard. And so what we're being trained, what we're being taught, what we think that, um, the entire pre-medical curriculum consists in is a set of courses that are really difficult and that are um, going to test our mental capacity, basically. Our ability to memorize, to regurgitate facts, to memorize patterns of reasoning. Um, And that's definitely been my experience and the experience of some of my friends. Um, And I just wonder if that's really what a pre-medical education ought to be. Um, there's nothing wrong with learning science, right? Like that is necessary. That's a, if some may say the fundamental part of what a doctor is, is the doctor has to know the biology, chemistry, physics, anatomy, um, that help inform them how to treat a person. Uh, so there's nothing wrong with that. Um, what we see in like pre-med curriculum and pre-med culture is this, relentless pace, um, the pressure to do, uh, all the extracurricular activities and to do just the right ones. 
um, a pressure to have a good social life and get a lot of sleep because you have to be a well-rounded individual. Um, all of those things. And I think that those condition us to see this ideal self that really isn't attainable <clears throat> and uh, that what ends up happening is a you shift your focus from people and how to love people well to how to serve yourself to kind of go down this path, um, this path that's prescribed for you, if that makes sense. Um, there's a nearby medical school that will remain unnamed, but their ideal candidate is someone who is, like this is from their website, more than a good student, more than a volunteer or a servant, um, more than all these other characteristics. And I think that, you know, of course, like that's those excellent people are the sorts of people that you want to be your doctor and to be treating you. Um, but also just think about that for a second. Like they want people who are more than every single possible characteristic that they could, um, that they could embody. And there's an issue with that. I think is that we as people cannot be more than, um, every single thing that we can possibly be. Um, we don't have the time, we don't have the energy, we don't have the capability. Um, and so there's sort of the, the fall or the, the setback, the, the issue with the pre-medical education is that um, it's telling us that we need to be something that we cannot possibly be. And it's uh, shifting our focus from what is really important in medicine, which is um, loving the patient in front of you. What do you think... What do you think are the ways that a doctor might, you know, left or leaving medical school, feel most prepared? Hmm. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. What do you think are the strengths, I guess, of the current curriculum? Um, um, the current strengths, I think the, the pre-medical curriculum and then culture as a whole is um, preparing students well for the rigor that they're going to face in medical school. Um, there's a lot to learn both on the science side and on the patient centered care side. Um, and so I've heard, and I've actually heard this from UNC medical school admissions committee people that UNC students are really well prepared for medical school. Um, and so all of the rigors that come with the next level of schooling UNC students can handle. I also think that, um, there's sometimes the pre-med culture here, um, steer students towards lab-based research. And because of that, I think that a lot of UNC students are prepared to do really good scientific research um, out of undergrad or even during undergrad. That's, um, that's a pretty common, I guess, tenet of this like pre-med culture. So just to clarify that yeah. distinction, you're saying that, you know, our curriculum here at UNC is preparing students not just to practice medicine, but to push the boundaries of medicine and find new solutions through research, is that what you're saying? Yeah, okay. um, from the basic science side in particular. Yeah. Um, obviously, it's a great research university, so you're going to have people working in those labs who get really well prepared and really well trained for that sort of thing. Yeah, that's good, and that's that's important to say because I think um, from critiquing something within it, it's it's good to, to notice the strengths. Yeah, absolutely. There was one thing that you said earlier that I would love for you to elaborate on, <clears throat> and it's that idea that we expect our doctors um, or our students studying to be doctors to be almost superhuman. And then we put them into 
positions where they're dealing with patients who are not superhuman. And so I wonder if, uh, you know, the, for the few, the lucky few doctors who don't get weeded out and who go successfully through the medical school track and they complete their residency and then they are prescribing things to patients with a level of dedication that does not match their own. I wonder if you've seen examples where there's a disconnect between doctors and their patients um, and there's, un, you know, unfair expectations put on patients to, to have the same kind of superhuman dedication and discipline that they learned in their training? Mm. Yeah, two things on that. Um, one is, as I've been more involved in research on campus, I'm doing like epidemiological research on HIV. Um, the uh, PI of my project, who's the person who's kind of my boss, we were having a conversation about um, sort of this issue. She was telling me that in North Carolina, HIV is not tapering off. Like we don't see decreased incidence every year, but it's actually increasing and it's increasing toward epidemic levels again, um, like it had before treatments were even available for HIV. And of course you wonder why, like, why is it that even with all this advanced technology, with all of this, all these new interventions and this cutting edge research, um, all of the billions of dollars a year that are funneled into HIV research, why is it that in North Carolina, um, incidence is reaching record highs? Um, and one of the points that she made was uh, the people who are designing interventions are not like the people who are receiving interventions. Um, and so we see those who are receiving interventions are disproportionately um, African-American, are disproportionately injection drug users, um, are disproportionately members of marginalized classes. Whereas those who are actually formulating the interventions and doing the research are disproportionately members of privileged classes. Um, and there's a fundamental disconnect there that may explain, I'm not saying it does, and there's been no research on this, but it may explain um, where you see this disconnect. Because if you look at people as, as numbers, and I think we'll get to the mechanization of people, if you look at people as numbers or as um, embodying certain characteristics that um, you've generalized to um, to say that like those characteristics mean something about these people um, that doesn't really consider the individual humanity. I think what you see is generalizations that don't necessarily work. So there's an example like on the public health scale. Um, I think on the individual scale, I've never seen this because I haven't spent a ton of hours in the clinic, um, but I was recently reading a book by an author named David Foster Wallace called Infinite Jest. Um, and there's a great uh, sort of episode in this book um, uh, that really illustrates the disconnect between a doctor and patient um, in the mental health care setting. And this doctor is um, obviously a, a very highly educated person. He's um, very meticulous and almost uh, operates by a checklist. Um, that's sort of the, the aura that he puts off. And then you have a patient who was admitted to the hospital um, because of suicidal ideation. And again, there's like this palpable fundamental disconnect between these two people. Um, you have the doctor on the one hand who sort of constructed this meaning out of his life um, by his high levels of education and his um, achievement and all of that. And then you have this patient who um, 
can't even get out of bed and go to work in the morning and um, finds life to be, frankly, meaningless. Um, And there was no empathy in this episode between this doctor and this patient. Um, The doctor at one point, um, it's the narrator is sort of getting into the doctor's head and he's telling us what the doctor is thinking as he's trying to converse with this patient and understand her predicament. And the doctor is... um, basically reflecting on all of the medical literature that he's read. Um, he's never seen a patient with this sort of exposure describing this sort of feeling um, manifest in a certain way um, or present to the clinic in a certain way. Um, it's almost like he has this encyclopedic knowledge where he can flip through books in his head like that he's memorized, but yet he fails to actually connect with the human being that's in front of him. Um, And so there we also see this fundamental disconnect. And I think if that sort of episode is in this book, um, it's a comment that the author, Foster Wallace, is making on mental health care in the United States. And I'm inclined to think that this this sort of disconnect is um, present in other disciplines as well, Um, other like medical disciplines. So, Yeah, that's a really interesting, that's a really interesting thought that, kind of leads into a question I wanted to ask you, which is if there, if the role of a doctor, since that role was created, is to promote health and well-being, mm-hmm. how do you find the boundaries of the sort of health and the sort of well-being that a medical doctor is supposed to serve? And like that's it, the suicidal ideation is a good example because, I mean, I think about the... Um, scenes in a movie like you know have you seen the movie yes man with Mm, jim carrey um where he uh he pulls someone off of a a balcony who's going to commit suicide and and then ambulances rush up to the building and police and stuff and i just i always think what is the ambulance gonna do Mm. when they what are the um, emts gonna gonna do when they get that person in the ambulance is this there's nothing physically wrong with this body yeah, this is an emotional problem. This is some kind of maybe a spiritual problem. And so those categories of emotional health and physical health and spiritual health, are they as disconnected as we think? Hmm. That's a great question. Um, I think uh, to this, we can turn to scripture to really understand um, what constitutes a human being. Um, here may be another pitfall of the pre-medical education, too. Um, in our biology classes and in our chemistry classes, um, we're taught that human beings are the product or amalgamation of a bunch of different reactions, chemical reactions, that are favorable at certain temperatures and not favorable and have all these other characteristics. Um, in our psychology classes, we may be taught that human beings are just products of social forces that have formed them. Um, and I think each of these disciplines has pieces of truth, right? Like we do know that, um, certain enzymes make life possible. We do know that social environments and conditions really matter for who people are, um, how they express themselves, uh, yet they're not whole, right? And so we have to sort of combine this knowledge and then we're, we have to ask, you know, what else are we missing? How else can we figure out who the human being is? Um, And scripture is, um, as a Christian, that's kind of where I want to go to receive that truth, right? Um, I have 
this revelation that I believe is from God, who is the creator of these human beings that I'm trying to understand. Um, and so what does he have to say about who they are? Um, there, there's a passage in Genesis that talks about um, what God did when he created man, when he created the first man. Um, and it talks about God taking the dust of the earth and forming it into a body. Um, and so there we see the physical component of man and who he is. Um, we also see God breathing into the man a spirit or life. Um, and so we can see like this, this spiritual component of who a person is. And I think that may be um, how as Christians we relate to God, but I think as any human being, how we relate to some transcendence. Um, but then we also see um, another component of this, which is uh, sort of the soul. And spirit and soul are, I think, often combined into one, but we can kind of see them as two separate things, where the soul is um, a person's reasoning faculties, their emotion, their will, um, feelings, those sorts of things that we can't really lump into either the spiritual or the uh, physical. And so we see like this, this picture of a whole human being, and we see that echoed later on in the New Testament. Um, and then another thing to consider is um, the worth of a human being. And so in Genesis, we're told that um, all of humanity is created in the image of God, um, and there are many implications of that doctrine. But then we also see in the New Testament that Jesus himself, um, who is God, became a man for humanity um, and for humanity's sake. And just the fact that he would become a human being, I think, imbues us with some inherent worth, right? So when we're thinking about um, what a human being is, I mentioned those three things, spirit, soul, and body, um, and how, like your the example from Yes Man, um, how that suicidal great person, movie. great movie, <laughs> um, how that suicidal person had nothing physically wrong with them. There was nothing wrong with their body, um, but there may have been spiritual or soul-related um, things to consider, um, in that person's whole health. Um, I think the role of a doctor is primarily to treat the body. That's what doctors are trained to do. And if you look at the history of doctoring, um, as an art and as a tradition, um, that is primarily what doctors have done. Um, however, there's also a responsibility, um, of a doctor that when treating the physical body, um, one also ought to consider the soul and the spirit. Um, and so, you know, I could give this example, like one of my housemates works with the Community Empowerment Fund who helps um, victims of homelessness kind of get back on their feet um, and hopefully um, get housing and um, a constant steady source of income. And they do great work. What they're doing is, um, at least in their direct interactions with the homeless, is primarily um, soul restoration. They are um, helping the individual to reach sort of the steady state of um, emotional stability or whatever it is that's causing homelessness. But I think their work would be remiss if they didn't refer that person to a doctor. Um, and if that person decided um, that they wanted this, that they didn't refer that person to a church um, or another place of worship. 
um, their work would not be complete if they didn't do these things. And so CEF does all of those things. Um, and now if we apply that same line of reasoning to the doctor, then we should see that a doctor treats the physical body, but is still concerned for the whole human being, which is also soul and spirit. Um, and so I think doctors have a lot, um, maybe even a lot of thinking to do on how best to connect people to the right resources, um, or to even offer, um, some wisdom themselves, um, in order to treat the soul and the body. Right. I read, I remember reading somewhere that the field of biology has come relatively recently, uh, as a scientific field Mm -hmm. and that it was under a lot of criticism in whatever 18th or 19th century that it emerged in because a lot of, a lot of critics were saying that why do we need this field when it's essentially just chemistry and physics? And I think that mindset of biology is just chemistry and physics has sustained itself into the 21st century. And I think in a lot of ways, we are starting to understand the human person in more complex ways. Um, the field of the humanities has emerged because it's we're starting to understand that people are complicated and that this categorization of you know, of these are the emotional needs, these are the spiritual needs, and these are the physical needs, and we can treat them all separately is starting to break down. But I think that for doctors and for medical professionals, um, that kind of disconnection is still very much alive. Um, and one of the things that you wrote in the outline that you sent me was really powerful to me. Um, and I want to read it and then, um, not to be a dead horse cause it's kind of related to the same thing, but, um, I want to hear you elaborate just a little bit more on it. You said, I'm inclined to think that for the physician, a knowledge of scientific tools is subservient to an accurate view of the human person. So how, how would you describe an accurate view of the human person? Mm. Um, again, like for, you know, as I was writing that, I was thinking, you know, um, if I become a doctor one day, how am I going to live out that statement? Um, and so it's a personal question. It's for me as a Christian person. Um, I take the human being to be what God tells me the human being is. Um, and that was what I described as, um, being in scripture and there are tons of examples in scripture where we could say, um, here is like a part of the truth of what a human being is. Um, and so again, like an accurate, an accurate view of the human person, um, to avoid getting into all of the philosophical complexity, we can just keep it at, um, man was made in the image and likeness of God. Um, that Jesus became a man um, and ended up dying on a cross and being resurrected um, in order to pay the penalty for our sin and to restore creation to its original intended order. Um, But there's significance in that, that Christ became a man or that man is made in the image and likeness of God. I should say when I say man, I mean humanity. Um, But it is crucial for the doctor to have that... um, understanding of the human being, that they are uh, made in the image of God, or at the very least have an intrinsic worth um, that the doctor cannot explain, but that the doctor consistently and constantly uh, is interacting with. I was having a meeting with a doctor um, who is an OBGYN at UNC, and he was telling me about 
sort of his approach to um, medicine and how he sees each patient. Um, and he likes to take a narrative approach where um, he sees every patient as, yes, made in the image of God and having intrinsic worth, but also as part of a story. Um, they are part of a grand narrative and they have their own narrative. Um, and the doctor has the privilege of entering into that narrative um, at one small place. Um, and for some patients at many small places or for an extended period of time, uh, I think with that understanding, um, that every human being like you has, um, a long history and a long story that is informing who they are today. Um, and like you, that they have, uh, an inherent worth that, um, is almost inexpressible or that feels undeserved, uh, having those sorts of understandings is vital to treating the whole person well. Um, it's something that every doctor should at least consider. That's awesome. <clears throat> and so before we, before we finish, I want to ask three more questions and they're all kind of related. So I'm going to throw them all at you at once. Okay. Um, so in light of all of this, all these observations and thoughts, what do you think your advice would be to med students, pre-med students, and doctors at large from whatever worldview they come from? What do you think their advice would be if they want to practice medicine with virtue? Mm -hmm. There's a lot to that. <laughs> um, so I was reading an article by Paul Ramsey, uh, who's a medical ethicist, um, and he said, he, he said something that really struck me as profound. He said, um, the question what ought the doctor to do is basically a subset of the question, what ought I to do? Um, meaning basically what he's saying is that, uh, being a good doctor in order to be a good doctor, one must be a good person. Um, wow. and when I say like good person, I don't just mean, you know, kind of what we mean colloquially, but as someone who embodies certain virtues, um, and who lives them out and practices them routinely. Um, in like the classical sense, a good person, right? So, um, a really influential book, another one is called you are what you love. It's by James K. A. Smith. Um, but that book talks about the liturgical nature of the human life. Um, and how as human beings, we are shaped constantly by the choices that we make, um, that our emotions and our desires are shaped by those choices. Um, so usually what we think is that our emotions and desires inform the choices that we make in the case that he's making, which is really rooted in a much deeper tradition, um, is that, uh, the things that we do inform our desires and shape our desires. And so if we desire to be good doctors, we must be good people. And in order to become good people, we need to practice those habits, um, that form good in people. Um, and so there are a lot of these, right? I think one of the most practical ones is that if we take this understanding of medicine, that medicine is first an art and that it is um, uniquely conscious of the human person um, as a human person, then we ought to see all people as um, having that intrinsic worth that I was talking about, um, as being people who are... Uh, living in a story, a, a big story that you can't even see. Um, and we ought to approach all of our relationships that way. 
Um, this might mean uh, for the doctor when he's delivering bad news to a patient that he is um, expressing with his body language and with his demeanor that um, he is fully invested in that patient's uh, cause, uh, that he can empathize with their suffering and that he is present there in, uh, in the midst of their suffering. And so that would be one person put it uh, to me as squaring up and looking them in the eye. Um, but even that shift of the body is um, underneath is forming that doctor's desire and will um, to be focused on the patient. Um, so that may just be one small way, but I think that we can consider in our lives those practices that we um, habitually exercise that form us to love people and to see people as being made in the image of God, um, as seeing people with intrinsic worth and with um, a long story that we can't even see. And then we have those practices that, that distort that and deform that. And so really this is a matter of limiting those practices that distort and increasing those practices that form us into the types of people who see others as having intrinsic worth. And that's the task of not just the doctor, but the good person generally. Wow. Yeah. So then second question, what would your practical advice be for Christian doctors in particular? For Christian doctors, um, I mean, I think we see in scripture um, and in the person of Christ that love is um, a pretty evident Christian virtue. And there's a lot of teasing out of what love actually means. Um, I think that it's pointing toward truth, um, but that can come in many forms. That can be um, not just ideological, but it can also be um, caring for people, helping them in their need. Um, for the Christian doctor, I think it's paramount that you live a life in scripture and in prayer. Um, I think as Christians, we understand that um, despite our efforts and our trying, uh, often those things end up being futile, um, that because of our sinful nature, we are not able to act as we ought. Um, that's what Paul says. And we need a new person. We need a new um, being in order to, to kind of throw off that old sinful nature. Um, that comes initially with faith in Christ. Um, but for the Christian who's being sanctified continuously, um, some of the practices, and again, this is virtue building. Um, some of those practices are going to be, um, consistency in reading scripture and in prayer. Um, but then again, we have uh, calls of um, that Christ has on us to um, be charitable and to love others, and there are practical ways that that works out, right? So um, it's also going to be a matter of practicing those things. I think a lot of the answer to what what is a good Christian doctor is just what is a good Christian. Again, like that yeah. that that's the primary question, um, and so we need to search Scripture for that. Um, but be in Scripture, be in prayer, and love others actively. Yeah. Wow. So then last question, what would, what advice would you give to patients who want to speak into this virtuous, holistic view of the self? Patients, and that includes doctors, right? Every doctor is a patient at some point, and that includes pre-med students and everybody in between. Um, 
patients ought to see health as a good, um, that health is good in and of itself, because like you said, health is wholeness and it's, um, a condition of being a whole person, right? So we said spirit, um, body and soul, uh, or having that worth being in that story. Um, and so the patient can do a lot to, um, obviously improve one's own health or to remain healthy. I think like for the pre-med student, who's also a patient, um, one of those things is like exercise and hang out with friends and do those things that are, um, filling, uh, not just like the mental side of you, but your soul and your friendships, um, that are serving your body and your exercise. Um, and even that's serving your spirit for the Christian pre-medical student by being involved in a local church or, um, having a Christian community. Um, and those are all practices that are going to make for healthy, uh, individuals just for any old patient. Um, I think that, yeah, again, like this understanding that, uh, health is a good in and of itself. Um, health is not just the absence of disease, but health is actually the fullness that I was talking about earlier. Mm. Um, that understanding is going to, um, it's not going to, you know, it's not going to change the health behaviors of everyone, but, um, I think it can certainly, um, serve to make for a healthier population. Um, but it really is about, um, the individual's action in building those virtues because virtues come through habitual exercise. Um, and a doctor can certainly work with patients on that. Um, I don't think that that's out of the question, but things like checking insulin for the diabetic is a practice that is going to help to maintain health or build health. Um, taking medication regularly for the HIV patient is absolutely essential to keeping viral loads down and, um, being able to live a relatively normal life given that they have HIV. Um, and yeah, so we see these practices come up again and the doctor is there to encourage those practices. Yeah. Well, thank you, Matt. I really appreciated this conversation. I appreciate all of our conversations. Of course. So do I, Brady. Um, <laughs> be sure to tune in to future episodes of the podcast. Coming up in the next several weeks, we're going to have conversations like one on um, racial reconciliation in the church, one on the new horizons of affordable housing um, and the effects of gentrification in America. And they're going to be really exciting and really interesting. And there's going to be many, many more. So be sure to tune in to, to the well. Thanks.